So I had the opportunity about a week ago to go over to Level Land and watch the uh, Class 2A boys basketball tournament. Man, I'm going to be well satiated today. Thanks, Steve. Anyway, I had to go to the bathroom, too. Um, and, uh, and, and the reason I went over there is because uh, my alma mater, the Mighty Groover Greyhounds, were playing in the regional finals. And uh, it was a great experience. Anytime I go back to uh, where my hometown gathers um, and I see all the people in my hometown, there's several things I notice. The first thing I notice is that people continue to get older. Uh, people who, you know, were 40 when I was in high school are like 65 now. And that just happens. And usually I recognize most of them. Uh, and sometimes I fail to remember I'm getting older as well. I'm just as much older as they are. Uh, but the other thing that I think is fascinating is uh, I love to watch the next generation of children uh, grow up. And so I was looking and I looked at the basketball team and some of the players on the team. And I could tell by looking at uh, certain players, I know exactly who that kid's parents are. I don't, you don't have to tell me. You don't have to give me a program. I can just tell because I remember what that kid's parents used to look like. And that young man or that young woman looks just like his or her mom or dad. And that is a perspective of history that I'm just now old enough to finally begin to really get and to really grasp. It's kind of a neat thing to be able to do. Uh, and, and so, you know, sometimes that happens. Sometimes it, the, the resemblance isn't uh, is easy to get. But why is that? Why is it that you can look at someone and say, oh yeah, that's, that's Johnny's boy or that's, that's Susan's kid. Well, the reason is because they share DNA, don't they? That kid has his dad's DNA. And I can tell he is the son of his father. Well, we're in a series called DNA of a Christ Follower. And it's based upon the book by the same name. And it's a series that we're doing throughout the entire church, all five of our worship services. We are preaching on uh, this book. If you have not had a chance to get the book, uh, then I encourage you to do so. Uh, we were passing free ones out, but I think those are all coming gone. So go get you a copy. DNA of a Christ Follower by Darren Ryden. DNA, as far as I understand it, is the basic building blocks that uh, really make up who we are. Our DNA contains the codes for what we look like, for the limits of our athletic ability, for, to some degree, the limits of our intelligence, and to a degree, our personality. Our DNA gives rise to all these components that make us who we are. In his baptism, Jesus is called, my beloved son, by the voice from heaven. Jesus shares DNA of his heavenly father. In the same way, when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, we also share in the DNA of Christ. When people look at a spirit-filled disciple who is living their life glorifying and honoring God and following Christ, then we can look at them and say, I know who that is. That's, that's God's child. I recognize that person. That's, that's a follower of Christ. I can, I can see the resemblance. DNA of a Christ follower. And so the author of this book, Darren Ride, lays out eight essential traits that are encoded within the DNA of a Christ follower. 
During this season of Lent, it is a great opportunity for us to come back to these basic building blocks of our faith. Nothing too fancy, nothing too entertaining, for the season of Lent is not about being entertained. It's about stripping down the extra stuff to get down to the basics, just like Jesus did in his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness when he was tempted by the devil. Today's scripture reflects the first of those eight traits. Jesus uh, later on quoted this. This is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. To love the Lord your God. What does it look like to love God? Isn't that kind of a strange thing? To love God, it's kind of easy to love chocolate or to love donuts. It's easy to love a dog or a cat. It may be easy to love another person, or at least there's got to be a few other people out there that you love, right? But what does it mean to love God? We can't give God a hug, so to speak. So let's delve into what that means. If, if the number one commandment in our lives is to love God, let's unpack that and consider that. Peter was struck with this question after Jesus' resurrection. They were on the beach. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Like Jesus is repeating it again and again. And it makes me think, well, what about us? What What if that was us? Hey, Kurt, do you love me? What if Jesus said that to you? Hey, Clay, do you love me? Hey, Dustin, do you love me? Think about it. What if Jesus said your name? What would you say in response? George Barna, researcher, lays out what he considers to be 10 steps of faith in his book, Maximized Faith. And in this uh, book, he talks about this progression from step one to step 10. And one of those steps is what he calls profound love for God. Now, when I think of, if I were to think of, a, you know, if there were 10 steps of faith and you were just had to fill in the blank, you may say, well, I don't know, giving to people, uh, loving others, those are good things, loving God's in there somewhere. Where would you rank loving God on those 10 steps of faith? In my mind, I would think, well, that's probably pretty early in the process. Loving God's got to be kind of an early thing in, in the process of following Christ. But Barnes, not talking about just any old casual love of God. He's talking about a profound love for God. And in the 10 steps, he puts profound love of God at step number nine. Now, this is his research and his understanding of how things work, but only, the t- only 1% of people get to this place where they describe what he calls a profound love for God. That makes me think, I'm probably not in that 1%. I've got some work that I need to do. When asked about the greatest commandment, Jesus quotes this Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's known as the Shema. Jews have prayed this prayer every morning and every night for years. It's one of the most sacred texts in the Old Testament, and it should be one of ours as well. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? 
Matthew 22, 36, Jesus answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. It's the number one command in yours and my life. It truly is a deep and a wide endeavor. Deeper and wider than we probably have previously imagined. So what does it look like to love God? Well, sometimes it's easier to describe what something looks like by taking what it doesn't look like off the table. So let's do that first. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable of a Pharisee who comes to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee looks over and notices there's a tax collector. The Pharisee says, Lord, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that, that I fast twice a week and that I give a tenth of my income and that I'm so holy. And this tax collector over there is humble and he is confessing his sin and he's beating his breast. And Jesus says, the Pharisee did not walk away from the temple being right with God that day. So what does that mean? Well, that means loving God doesn't consist in tithing and fasting twice a week is what that means. That's not always the litmus test for what love of God looks like. Consider another example. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 talks about love. He says, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels but do not have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. It's strange to think that one can do all these things and still not have love. Having those kinds of things you do in your life, giving away all your possessions, still does not necessarily mean that we love God. Final example, think of the elder in the story of the prodigal son. The younger son takes his share of the inheritance and goes away and spends it on wild living, finally comes back after he goes broke, and the father welcomes him back home, and they celebrate in the household, and the elder brother is mad because he has done everything right. And the father goes and pleads with his elder son to come in to the party and to celebrate, and the elder son says, all my life I have been working like a slave for you. Working like a slave for God is not the same as loving God. Clearly doing things for God, giving to God, and working for God is not always translate into loving God. These all are examples of getting the cart before the horse. The Pharisee, the imaginary I in 1 Corinthians, and the elder were working hard and making sacrifice, but not loving and here's why. The reason they were not loving is because love primarily comes from God and not me or you. You and I are not the source of love. God is the source of all love. Even people who don't even acknowledge God's existence have the capacity to love because God gave them that capacity to love. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. The measure of your love for God is connected to how much you believe God loves you. How much you're willing to accept His love for you. 
1 John 4, 9. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love revealed in this way, through Jesus Christ. The act of Jesus offering Himself as an atoning sacrifice for your sins and for mine is the starting point for our thinking about love. It is in reflecting on Jesus' death that God begins to upload His DNA into our hearts. And what a great time to do that during this season of Lent, a time where we, by the calendar of the church faith, we focus in on what Jesus in His death has done for us. Romans 5, and in our United Methodist Liturgy, we say Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. And Jesus' giving of Himself reflects also His love for God. And that can be broken down in two ways. First of all, Jesus' death on the cross is an act of of worship. What do you think of when you think of worship? What comes to your mind? Ultimately, worship is about giving ourselves over to God. When we sing songs, when we position ourselves to hear the word of God, we share in communion. These are all designed to be a part of something bigger, of giving ourselves over to God. To worship God is a unique part of our relationship with God alone. We can talk about God being our friend. We can talk about God uh, even being, sometimes we use romantic language to talk about God. And the church even uses marriage language to talk about God's relationship with His church. We can talk about God sometimes in a more casual way. And it's very right to talk about God as being His sons and daughters. But ultimately, this relationship is a worship relationship. And God is the only one that we are called to worship. We are not called to worship another person. We're not called to worship another thing. We are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is what worship is. Paul says in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To present ourselves to God as a sacrifice is to worship God. To worship God is to love God. John Wesley has a prayer called John Wesley's, he calls it his covenant prayer. And I like to read it every now and then. Um, Sometimes when I read it, I kind of shrink back a little bit because I don't know if I'm fully giving myself into it, but I'm just going to read it anyway, okay? says, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly give. Yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. 
And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant that I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Sometimes I get to that part, especially when it says, let me be laid aside for you or put me to suffering. I kind of I kind of fake that part. Do you ever fake that part? You know, Lord, we just love you, we worship you, and we surrender our lives to you. But something in us says, oh, I don't know if I really want to fully surrender my whole life to God, right? Let's be honest. There's parts of our hearts that hold back. Why? Because there's little places in our hearts that don't have that profound love for God just yet. But in the context of worship, in the context of sacrifice, in the context of offering ourselves over, God has something to work with. God takes us, he changes us, he transforms our heart, he transforms our mind, and he makes us into who we were meant to be from the very beginning. To love God is to worship God, and Jesus' death on the cross is the very essence of what worship is. Second of all, Jesus' death on the cross is an act of obedience. An act of obedience. When we love God, we will obey Him. Jesus says in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commands. We know when Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter said yes, and then Jesus said, Well, then do this, feed my sheep. Tend my sheep, feed my sheep. When Jesus asks us if we love Him, He's going to give you a command. That's, that's part of the deal, is obedience. How might God be calling you to be obedient today? Darren Wright in the book, DNA of a Christ Follower, tells the story of a woman who had an abusive husband. And this man uh, was demanding, controlling. He would make a long list of things for her to do. And she would try really hard to do all the things on the list, but it never seemed to be good enough. She never seemed to fully get through it. Well, her husband died and Years later, she remarried, this time to a man who was the opposite of her first husband. He was kind and generous, and he loved her unconditionally. Several years into that marriage, the woman stumbled upon that old to-do list from her first marriage, and she was shocked and stunned to see that she was already doing everything on that list and all the more with a good and joyful heart. That's what obedience looks like in our relationship with God. That whatever God desires for us to do, as we learn to love Him, we more willingly live into that and we obey, even if it costs us something, even if it costs us our comfort, our security, or the things that we tend to hang on to in life. That is the obedience that comes from love. So to have a profound love for God means, number one, that we worship God. Number two, it means that we obey God. And the pattern for both of those is Jesus who dies on the cross for us. We take upon that same call to live out lives where we are crucified with Christ. This is the substance of sacrifice. We offer our lives to God as living sacrifices but we only do so because he first loved us. So my brothers and sisters, do you love God? And back in that 
up just a little bit, maybe we should ask, do you know that God loves you? Because if you know that first one, then you're on your way to the second one. And if you are on your way to the second one, then as you continue to worship him and obey him and sacrifice, he is going to continue to grow you into who you were meant to be. To live out that command to love him with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Let us pray. So we pray, I just want to invite you to think about if Jesus were asking you the question, do you love me? And all the good weightiness that that question involves. Lord, we come before you We know that we could work like a slave for you. We know we could do many things that are sacrifices based upon our strength. But Lord, we know it's nothing if we don't understand what you have done for us. That you died for us while we were yet sinners. And so Lord, would you open our hearts to receive that, to meditate upon your cross, to meditate upon your willingness to give your life on behalf of this world and on behalf of us. Lord, would you show us the areas in our life where you are leading and calling us to worship you? Show us the areas of our life where you are calling us to obey you. Give us a faith in you to let go of the things that keep us from doing that. And show us, O Lord, your deeper and greater love as we love you all the more. Lead us in your ways, O Jesus, for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Christ our Lord.